Hi, welcome to LSE. Thank you all for coming out. Um, for those who don't know me, um, I'm Max Nathan. I'm a research fellow here at the Spatial Economics Research Centre. I'm also the deputy director of the What Works Centre for Local Economic Growth. Uh, a few housekeeping things uh, I've, that I've been asked to run through with you. Um, please put phones, tablets, etc. on silent. Um, you can keep them on, obviously. Uh, if you want to tweet tonight, the hashtag is LSE Digital. You can see it up there. Uh, we are recording tonight's event, and uh, as it says here, uh, we will hopefully be able to make it available to you uh, as a podcast afterwards, subject to no technical difficulties. So... Um, we're very happy to have uh, Gerard Grech, CEO of Tech City UK, uh, here with us to talk about London's digital futures. Uh, this is a great time, I think, to be thinking about the capital's digital economy and where it's going. Some work that I've been doing with colleagues at LSE suggests that we've got you know, at least half a million people working in tech firms across the city, nearly 100,000 of those businesses. That's probably an underestimate. And that's a rise in employment terms of at least uh, two-thirds since 1997. So this is massive growth. Uh, and these are jobs that, that support others uh, in the city as well. Since 2010, as you know, um, policymakers have been actively involved in trying to promote the sector, first in East London and now across the capital and, and across the UK. Since that date, we've seen quite a lot of startup activity, lots of angel and VC finance arriving, specialist services, especially co-working spaces and accelerators, universities starting to engage. So the, sort of the bigger ecosystem is starting to emerge and starting to take shape. There are also challenges, I think, um, which many of you will be aware of. Rising property costs, skills, uh, infrastructure, particularly broadband, um, trying to get a sense of the right policy mix, and also thinking about some of the social impacts as well, not just the way that uh, the tech industry is reshaping London neighbourhoods, but also thinking about how tech businesses can contribute to solving some of London's bigger, longer-term problems, particularly around transport, energy um, uh, and buildings. So big challenges, but also big opportunities, I think, um, for us to develop the fascinating and extraordinary tech communities that we have here, and to think about how those link to other cities in the UK. So Gerard, I think, is the ideal person to talk us through those issues, uh, and I know he's going to take a sort of forward look in his talk tonight. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Gerard is the CEO of Tech City UK. He's also a member of the UK government's uh, Digital Economy Council, the GLA's Smart London Board. He's got 15 years' experience uh, in digital media, web and mobile, working in a bunch of cities across the world. He's worked on product development, business strategy and venture capital. So, Gerald will talk for about 40 minutes. Uh, we will then open it up for questions. We'll try and finish by 8. It's a beautiful evening tonight, so I won't keep you longer than we have to. Um, and that's it for me. So please uh, join me in welcoming Gerald to give his lecture, entitled Digital Capital, uh, Where Next for London in the Tech Revolution. Thank you so much, Nathan. Um, 40 minutes sounds a hell of a lot of time, doesn't it? Um, Thank you so much for coming, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so I am here, indeed, to talk about where next for London in the tech revolution. I'm afraid you're witnessing my first public lecture. I'm used to sort of pitching applications uh, to mobile networks or pitching to companies looking to move here to London and the UK. Um, 
My team, some of whom are here in the audience, uh, were so worried about the sort of academic grilling that you might be giving me. Um, uh, they gave me a massive reading list to, over the weekend, and uh, uh, it included uh, Foucault and Rousseau, amongst many others. Nice. <laughs> um, but I do what I always do when I'm under you know, pressure like this to create, you know, to write an essay. Um, I listen to music and make cheese on toast, like probably many of you here. But before I start, a little bit about Tech City. Um, is the clicker working? Um, we're a bit of a hybrid. Uh, we sit between policymakers and the digital industry. Uh, we are based in Shoreditch in East London, as Nathan was talking about, running programs for businesses and startups and entrepreneurs. But we listen from the whole of the UK, across cities. We also beat the drum nationally and internationally for entrepreneurship. It's an amazing vantage point, and it's such a privilege to be in that position, to be able to see and document what's going on, and to think about the implications. And like my role, this is all about a dialogue. That's the important thing. And as such, I'm really looking forward to discussing this at the end with Nathan and yourselves over Q&As. But don't ask me to fix your Wi-Fi. I don't know what it's like here in, in LSE or your IT systems, but um, I don't work miracles. But this unique organization is really involved in a fascinating and multi-layered conversation the whole time. Uh, we talk to all sorts of companies, corporates, venture capitalists from all over the world, as well as governments from all over the world, who are very envious of what's going, here, uh, what's going on here in, in London and the UK. This means that we, we can draw some very exciting conclusions about impact and future of digital innovation. But first, who I guess here was, was born outside London? Hand, show hands, please. Wow. That's a good, that's over 80, I would say 80%, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought so. I actually first moved to London with my mother at the age of 13 from the tiny Mediterranean island of Gozo. I'm sure that many of you have not heard of it. As I drove through the city for the first time, I was mesmerized. My eyes were transfixed, glued to the car window, uh, looking at the staggering architecture, the river, the bright lights of the West End. I was dazzled, and I'm still out. And little did I know at the time, the Big Bang was well on the way, paving the way for London to become a global financial city. From the social revolutions of the 1960s, to the anti-establishment foundations of punk, to the creative industries of fashion, music, advertising, film, all across the capital. The city's commercial growth has been defined by eccentricity, courage, and the stubborn refusal to conform. It's strange to think that Brits have the reputation for being compliant, or, as some might say, the civil servants of the world. That has not been my experience to date, uh, and I'm sure it's not been yours either. London is now in the midst of another rebirth. Five years ago, there was no way this city was talked about in the same breath as Tel Aviv or Palo Alto. But now it is, and all the time, London is becoming a world leader in technology, entrepreneurship, and digital innovation. In the first six months of 2015, over 800 million pounds was uh, invested in London tech companies, ranging from e-commerce to fintech to uh, digital marketing companies. Since 2010, the number of digital firms in East London alone rose from 200 to over 3,000, according to some estimates. 
Today, more than 200,000 people work in digital technologies in the 12 boroughs of inner London, over 300,000 when you look at greater London. And this is not just in East London, it's not just in Old Street. King's Cross, Croydon, Bermondsey, Haggerston, Canary Wharf, Camden, Notting Hill, all boast a cluster of startups. And London is the home to some of Europe's most innovative companies, and I'm sure you've heard of some of these that I'm going to talk about. Take travel and tourism. We have one fine stay, where instead of a hotel, you can book to stay in a home or an apartment in cities around the world. Last week it raised over $40 million. And in fact, when you look at the room inventory that it has, it has more inventory than the Ritz, the Plaza, the Georges V, the Hotel Bel Air combined. And it's just five years old. In the area of finance or fintech, the crossover between financial services and technology, TransferWise enables you to transfer money across country borders. I'm sure some of you must use it in this room. Uh, it does so at up to a tenth of the cost that banks charge you. It was started by two Estonians. They recently had a funeral party for bankers as one of their marketing pranks. And they're just four years old. Then there's Funding Circle, a peer-to-peer lending platform, which enables you to lend money to businesses in exchange for a healthy return. Its latest market valuation is estimated at $1 billion, the same as TransferWise. Then there's parking, or the sharing economy, to many of you have heard of. Just Park lets you rent out your driveway for a daily rate you think is fair. They have just recently been crowdfunded, raising over 3.5 million pounds in 30 days from over 2,000 investors. St. Pancreas Church on the Euston Road, I believe, has raised more than 70,000 pounds renting its driveway on the Euston Road. And even dog owning would borrow my doggy.com. You can borrow a dog from someone who will be on holiday or needs support walking their pet. I'm not kidding. It's got me out of a lot of trouble with my children. A wide variety of businesses providing different services for different user needs, all here in London, all growing fast and creating jobs. And all of them have a revolutionary mindset at their core, challenging the status quo, creating viable business models in their own creative vision. A recent Nesta report on cities said the following. Not only do they produce the jobs of tomorrow, but they are increasingly perceived as a symbol of civic vitality. A symbol of civic vitality. Just hold that thought for a second. And as Nathan was talking about, digital ecosystems don't just form by accident. A number of factors paved the way for their incubation. Affordable property alternatives, various business and mentorship networks, accelerator programs, universities, the London Stock Exchange, all working in an effective and coordinated fashion. The government's introduction of policies to stimulate investment and attracting the best and brightest talent, such as tax breaks for early stage investment and research and development. Plus a strong paid forward mentality and our consistent beating of the drum for entrepreneurship and the growth of the UK's digital economy. This is why the role of national government and City Hall is so important. Increasingly, city government needs to understand what it must do to better enable innovation and entrepreneurship, especially urban innovation. 
But it's not just about building big digital companies. That's very good and essential for UK PLC and the Chancellor's Red Box. I'm sure many of you will be watching the latest budget uh, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer tomorrow. But I really wouldn't do this job if it was just about counting GDP. Like many of you, I care about technology because of its possibilities, including what it can do to make a city easier to live in. Part of people's attraction to London is London itself and how it behaves as a city. So how can we improve the city we live in? How will we stay at the forefront of digital innovation at the same time as making London as responsive as possible to the needs of its creators, makers, and communities, the very essence of a city culture? Well, here's one way to look at it. I want you to start thinking of London as a platform, a site of continuous reinvention, a shared laboratory for digital innovation. Civic vitality could be secured if and when we start thinking of the city as a platform. Stay with me. But before I get specific, let's take a step back and remind ourselves how technology is changing us at the macro level and how to reimagine things in the digital age. There has been a fundamental shift in how we order the social world. As Manuel Castells wrote nearly two decades ago, technology and digitized social spaces are creating a more decentralized and networked public sphere. What do I mean by that? Twitter, YouTube, Wikipedia, these platforms have moved us to a position where good ideas and consensus can surface via the crowd, can even be funded via the crowd, or even be discovered via the crowd. The spaces these networks create and the inabilities that build on them are creating the very fabric of our society. Never before have people's individual voices been so powerful, precisely because they can be amplified and broadcast through technological platforms. The fidelity of political rhetoric is being tested in real time, for example. Our capitalist democratic experiment is being digitally reimagined as I speak, right? However, if you look closely at the last decade's fastest growing tech companies, you'll notice they all have something in common. They're all platforms, or companies that have morphed into platforms. As you know, Google really took off when it opened up its search platform to let people bid on keywords. YouTube wasn't the first video hosting site, but it was the first to open up itself as a platform. Facebook wasn't the first social network, but it was the first to view itself as a platform. I remember when forging a pan-European deal between Orange and Facebook back in 2006 in Paris, and I asked the person at Facebook, I said, why did you join the company? And he said, I want to, I joined because I see Facebook as a platform like electricity, a, a place where people, creators and developers can plug into our data, our APIs, application protocol interfaces. It was a new innovation model, and clearly we've seen many of those models come up, like the Apple App Store. So what would a city look like? What would London look like if it was viewed as a platform in the same way? Here's the thing. London as an idea is not an abstraction. It encompasses objects like Buckingham Palace, like Hyde Park, black cabs, the tube, but it also exists in your phone, 
on your laptop and in the urban wisdom that you share with others over digital networks. And just like its physical architecture, its digital architecture can be disrupted, reinvented, and repurposed. Here's a brief analogy of how to think about this, and you may have come across this. Everyone used to ask, how should we change books to read them digitally? But the more interesting question is, how does digital change my engagement with books and reading? If you take a set of encyclopedias and ask, how do I make these digital, you get the Microsoft and Carter CD. I don't know if anyone remembers these CD-ROMs. Probably best to forget them, um, looking at the average age profile of the audience. Um, but if you ask, how can digital change our engagement with encyclopedias, that's when you get Wikipedia. I guess you shouldn't be, obviously, um, quoting them in your academic papers, but that's, that's the point. Along the same lines, we could take a city and ask, how can we make it more digital? And you would end up with smart toilets, bins, and elevators. But it's much better to ask, how does digital change the way that I engage with my city? Then we get closer to exploiting the full potential of technology in a civic urban environment. London should be our shared laboratory. We can be pioneers and recreate the ways in which we want our city to function. Cities around the world are already some, doing some incredible things. And I'll come to London in a second. Here are just some examples I share with you. Two of which were cited from a Nesta City report that was recently published. As reported by Jemima Kiss in The Guardian in a small city outside Granada, Twitter is being used as a central communication tool for governing. The mayor actually spent 16 years exploring the types of different technologies that they can use and how to communicate with citizens. They're using the platform to make doctor's appointments, report crimes, and to rate social programs and their effectiveness. Meanwhile, in Singapore, the Ministry of Transport monitors traffic across the city in real time and then acts on it. Let me explain. They have GPS on thousands of buses and taxis. They gather information 24-7 and then report that information back on websites, mobile apps, and radio to prevent overcrowding. Sounds familiar. I think we have something similar here. But here's the thing. Based on that information, traffic lights are adapted accordingly in real time. That's real-time data they're acting on to make the city even more productive at that given second. In Seoul, they've launched ShareHub as a way to share and optimize the city's public assets to foster more engagement. Over 700 public buildings have been opened up during idle hours for events, meetings, all bookable through the use of technology. Reykjavik, meanwhile, has a platform to propose and prioritize new ideas for the city. Over 60% of the city's population have participated already. Over 200 ideas have been formally reviewed, 165 of which have been accepted and implemented. And in Panama, Panama City, I beg your pardon, and this is one of my favorites, to tackle road depreciation and damaging vehicles, small sensors were fitted in potholes around the city. And each time a driver ran over a sensor, a tweet was sent to City Hall, giving them the location of the hole. Pothole politics in real time, right? Estonia, internationally renowned for its early adoption of digital platforms and services, 
has worked to ensure that its capital, Talent, is one of the most connected cities in the world. Free high-speed internet is available in over 30 major public spaces. With London set to reach a population of 10 million by 2031, that's in 16 years' time, we can't just carry on as we are. We have to be even more efficient and even more resourceful. Housing, transport, health, education, infrastructure, all have to bear the weight of new souls arriving by the week. The capital itself must be systematically reimagined in order to tackle the, the issues it faces. But it's already happening incrementally. Liam Maxwell, the UK's government first and current chief digital technology officer, put it this way. He said, we're building a digital government based on user needs. Everything we do is based on digital. This government, the GLA and local authorities, increasingly providing e-services, capturing data and information so that it can manage its priorities better. But it must go further. The more we feel engaged with our city, the more we will feel collectively responsible for it. It's a virtual circle with technology supplying the fuel for that acceleration. One city that's doing this already is Tel Aviv. In 2013, Tel Aviv launched a digital residence card which enables a two-way direct relationship between the, cities, the citizen and the municipality. It was created to get government to embrace Israel's well-known startup culture. Through smart cards issued to residents, and I guess this is most likely to be an interim solution until everyone has smartphones, the city is able to gather information from its citizens while its citizens have the opportunity to help shape policy or more practically get information about road closures or whether places at their local cinema are still available. It's a relationship built on a shared vision of what the city can be. Today in Tel Aviv, about 40% of its residents have signed up and are engaging with the platform. It sounds like a consumer service, right? But that's the point. Engagement with local government shouldn't feel like a chore. The easier it is to engage, the more we would want to contribute, right? That's the thing. It oozes you in. It attracts you in. Technology means cities and their governance structures can no longer be seen as untouchable entities. They must be connected to their citizens directly, seamlessly. I'm not suggesting we launch a residence ID card. And I know that the examples I gave you are from smaller cities, but more that we get into the mindset of a platform, setting out a virtual terms of service between ourselves and the city. There's huge potential for what I'm calling a digital social contract between city and citizen. The mutually accepted and shared understanding of rights, responsibilities, and delivery. The digital social contract is premised on the agreement that the city will do more for us in exchange for our active and passive contribution. We need to approach this openly if we expect our future to be different from our past. As a result, imagine the following. What if school classrooms in the city could be used on weekends to deliver educational workshops, cultural events, and were available for public use? 
What if the city ran competitions for providing services that are deemed too expensive or too complex to deliver, offering a budget as a prize for whoever comes up with an innovative way to deliver them for less? What if local communities could crowdfund ideas for their local areas, which could then compete for match funding from the local council? What if citizens carried early warning systems so that when air pollution got too dangerous, city planners were notified in real time? And what if public institutions ran monthly hackathons to get people to propose solutions for its most pressing problems, inviting anyone to show up? When this country experienced some of the worst floods in its history last year, I don't know if you remember it, it was in February, we organized a hackathon at Google Campus together with the Environmental Agency, who for the first time had released new data sets so the community could build new apps and solutions. The impact wasn't just inspirational, but it also helped launch a number of new solutions to help flood victims, and it was within 48 hours of, of the time that we had the hackathon. We all need to be more conscious of the technology we carry around with us to negotiate its functionality and to think about how it can be put to good use for the benefit of everyone. The more data we're willing to give, the more intelligence is collectively gained to create projects aimed at improving the urban experience. To quote Tom Steinberg, CEO of My Society, good governance and good policy are inextricably linked to digital. Which brings me to the point of data. Data is the lifeblood of urban innovation. And all of us need to recognize that by putting our data to use in a meaningful way, we can improve our lives. But city officials have a part to play, yes. They must create the appropriate systems to ensure its accountability is useful. Think about how much we trust Facebook with our personal thoughts, locations, images, and feelings. Yet we seem to bulk at the, at when we think of public institutions housing far less emotive, but nonetheless vital information. That has to change if we want to make our city move from something that's out there to something we can mold, reshape, and creatively reimagine. This is a complex interrelationship, I know, I get it. But let's take a great example. Think for a second how we've improved our public transport experience through the use of smart data. We've gone from complex printed schedules on bus stops, to text messaging, to the latest incarnation, City Mapper. I'm sure some of you have used it. Has anyone used City Mapper? Pretty popular. It's getting popular all the time. But through City Mapper, we engage in a social contract of digital trust with the provider. You know where I am. In return, you provide me with actionable intelligence on the quickest and cheapest route to my destination. These GPS-enabled GPS applications are made possible through the use of data sets opened by the Greater London Authority, Transport for London, and Playsar, who are running the Transport API. Building new services such as these over and above these data sets and APIs is critical to London's position as a global innovation centre. The GLA and its smart board have done a great job in launching the London Data Store, which contains over 800 data sets, varying from employment to traffic patterns when demand is highest. The access and use of these data sets to programmers, coders, developers, and digital businesses 
must be a priority for the new mayor. The mayor elections are next year. Not only is the use of aggregated data socially beneficial, but also financially smart. According to Ed Copeland of Policy Exchange, local authorities could save up to £10 billion by 2020 through crowd-shared and collaborative use of technology and data. In a connected society where I converse with government directly and can feedback into it purposefully, I'm far less likely to feel ostracized. I feel part of something bigger than myself, which can support me. The technology is here and improving every day. And the people are adopting it and are ready to use it. Take the millennial generation, which I'm sure a lot of you are. They are digitally, well, you are digitally engaged with a strong sense of moral purpose. That's what I get from my team, for sure. And their tools of engagement are mobile phones, laptops, and tablets. What we need to put in place is connected thinking throughout government, national and local, so we can get the very best out of it. The time is right for London to experiment with this. London already boasts the Open Data Institute, which is doing some amazing work around data sets. And soon, it will be joined by the Alan Turing Institute, which will be a dedicated institute to the world of data science and the application of algorithms. Boris Johnson has already set up the London Smart Board and launched the London Data Store. But we must continue building on this and London's reputation as a world leader in digital innovation and technology. Bang the drum all around the world to attract the best and brightest talent. The stage is set for the next mayor to ramp up to this to the next level. City representatives must understand that new business models will emerge and they need to understand how they can shape existing laws and frameworks. They need to experiment, iterate, and optimize. And these are the rite of passage for all great digital disruptors, as I was talking about earlier on. Does anyone remember the first airport to offer Wi-Fi or to accept smart boarding cards over your mobile phones? I want London to be first at launching and testing new citizen services. In addition to thinking of London as a platform capable of generating and sharing data to create a laboratory for change, the city's team must have strong representation from across the technological spectrum. From a chief digital officer responsible for the strategy to a head of data responsible for generating actionable insights and trends to a head of developer relations responsible for a team of evangelists promoting the use of data to programmers, designers, and businesses, and the people who are genuinely interested in making their city better. We need to move from the city, we need to move, sorry, I beg your pardon, the city from the digital cloud into the hands of the individual and city hall. To conclude, there is no doubt that London is at an inflection point. Record levels of investment, digital job creation, publicly available data sets, the social fabric of our shared urban platform is rapidly evolving. And you are at the helm of all of it. And like the origins of Tech City before it, the capital can be a global example of what can happen when entrepreneurial culture, disruptive thinking, and pay-it-forward mentality collide. The results could be truly revolutionary, in my opinion. These are fascinating times for the capital. But in order to stay ahead, 
We need to continue to foster the right conditions for growth and innovation. But just as importantly, to continue to spark the creative disruption that lies at the heart of the successful tech city story. To leave you, to leave you with a thought, you have more computing power in your pocket than what it took to land Apollo on the moon over 40 years ago. That power can unleash the potential for change in our urban environment with the capital city emerging as our platform, our shared laboratory. We are really on the cusp of the second wave of London's digital revolution, a human revolution, with the technology providing the tools for acceleration. And we all have a part to play. The city is ours. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. Jared, thank you so much for that. That's really fascinating stuff. Um, you know, a forward look, a sort of slice of really um, ambitious thinking. I think. I mean, you've touched on you touched on a number of points. There's a, there's a lot here, so I want to try and sort of recap on it briefly, and then we'll open things up. I mean, you've talked about London being at an inflection point. You've walked us through some of the you know, sectors and subsectors in, in the tech community. You've made the, you know, the, the foundational point for economic geographers like me about cities' role in innovation, cities being good places to do that. There's this provocative idea, I think, of London as a, as a platform as, and as an API. You've talked about open data, governance changes, the importance of political leadership. Um, and then there's this key idea of the digital social contract um, between business, government and citizens. Someone's asked on Twitter what Rousseau would make of that. Um, and then this point about London being an incubator and a change lab uh, that other cities can, can learn from. And you've talked about some of the institutions uh, that are based in London and that work for London to try and take yeah. that forward. I mean, there's some, there's some broader issues here as well, which I want to touch on briefly before we open it up. I mean, this, this notion of... of um, of the city as platform, the city as API, is, is really interesting, I think. I mean, the, the traditional sort of academic approach has been to think of it the other way around and think of the internet and platforms as a... Uh, sorry, to think of sort of the city as a, as a metaphor for, for the internet and platforms. And Stephen Johnson, in his uh, interview in, in London Essays, talks about this. So it's interesting to think about which way we can run this, I think, as a basis for strategy. You've set out some quite original... Uh, roles of policy in government as well, um, and there's a you know traditionally a number of different views on this. There are sort of policy minimalists who want government to simply get out of the way, and then there are sort of people on the other side who point to the you know often hidden role of government in making technological innovation happen. So Marina um, Matsukatu, for example, is very strong on this stuff. And then you've also touched on tech disruption and, and the sort of stance that policymakers should take to that. And it would be interesting, I think, to get some questions about um, you know, how we dig into that a little bit more. So uh, some work by a couple of people at Oxford, um, Osborne and Frey, looking at what London jobs are, are sort of vulnerable to automation in the future suggests that there's a, a good slice of lower skilled employment that might be automated away and it would be interesting I think to think about how the tech community and tech industries can help us to respond to that uh, and some of those challenges and there's a whole lot more but I, I don't want to sort of take the audience's opportunities away so look let's, let's open it up to all of you um, we have a steward I hope 
one, just the one, and one up there with roving mics. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Please wait for the steward to come to you. Um, please tell us who you are and what your affiliation is. Um, and please ask questions with question marks at the end rather than give mini lectures because um, that's, the, that's the role of me and Gerard. Um, I'll, I can see a number of hands up already, so I'm going to try and take these in clusters. Um, so we have a man over there in the front row, and then we have a guy there towards the back, and then we have someone over there on the back right. Nasser Kalawun, occasional commentator on BBC Arabic TV and other Arab satellite. Um, I'm aware since a number of years that uh, Take City has been put on the map of UKTI for visiting dignitaries from uh, emerging markets and especially from uh, the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, uh, for uh, government ministers and uh, businesses from chambers of commerce to uh, show them uh, the showcase the Take City. Um, can I ask you why is it to draw investment or is it to copy it for, uh, uh, since it's an emerging project with the other clusters around London? Uh, what is it, to draw investment from overseas or, or uh, partnerships or, or what? Thank you. Great, thank you. So we have another questioner over there towards the back right. Could you put your hand up so the steward can reach you? Thank you. Hi, I'm Dimitri. I work for a global digital agency here. Uh, Gerald, thank you very much for the inspiring talk. So we're both very fortunate to have come with our mothers to this country when we were 13. Many of my friends are not so fortunate and they have to leave this country because of its immigration policy after they finish studying and they're not from the EU. How can London um, at all think about developing its innovation uh, scene if, if we are telling students from amazing universities, very talented students, um, to go back to their country unless they can cough up a lot of money to start their own company here or apply for a large corporate where they will not quite do innovative tasks in their first years as an analyst. Great, thank you for that. And then we have a third question over here, lady towards the back on the right. Can you pop your hand up? Thank you. Hello, my name is Desne Masi. I'm just here in my private capacity. There was a discussion about a digital social contract and digital job creation, and the respondent uh, spoke about automation. I'd just like to talk about the discharging of employment obligations um, that we see sometimes with applications and uh, the casualization of labor. So, I mean, is this digital social contract meant to increase um, employment? And what kind of employment? Thank you. So that's three pretty diverse questions to start you off, Gerard. Um, the, the FDI uh, policy aim, immigration policy, and particularly post-study uh, tracks in and out of the UK, and then the casualisation of labour and automation. Okay, so let's uh, speak here. So regarding your, your question about uh, the role of Tech City... So, Tech City obviously started as a way of shining a light on East London. At the time, there were about 200 software companies. There are now over 3,000 software companies. And lots of companies have moved there. But clearly, digital isn't just 
it's, it's transversing into many other parts of se- many other sectors, uh, financial services, fashion, art, whatever, which is why we're seeing other clusters form around the capital. Uh, so one cluster that is forming very quickly is Haggiston, which is just north of Shoreditch, where there's a real maker's movement, actually making stuff, where the hardware and software, that magical touch point is coming together. So it started off as Tech City, but Tech City has grown. It's a mindset. It's more than just a postcode. And, so, and now we're also seeing emerging specialisms in other cities around the UK. You know, hardware in Cambridge, robotics in Bristol, cybersecurity in Belfast, fintech in Edinburgh. So it's, it's, it's definitely there to help. It's a springboard to showcase the best of British technological innovation. Does that make sense? Great. But the one thing I would say is that there are a lot of companies that are looking to London to scale up. So they start in other hubs around the world, or you know, like the Middle East you were talking about, like Lebanon, uh, like Tel Aviv, who are coming here and then being able to scale up internationally because there is access to capital markets, like the London Stock Exchange or the alternative investment market, but then also being able to access the talent. And also because of the geographical position of the UK, it's a great place to scale up and internationalize your business. The, what's the second one? So, uh, immigration. Immigration. Policy. So, yes. So, study. So, yes. Yeah, so, so, look, this government uh, and the previous government looked at digital it, it takes digital skills extremely seriously. And there are sort of multiple levels at which this is being tackled, of which immigration is one. The other ones are, you know, we're one of very, very few countries to have introduced coding at the age of five and making it compulsory in state schools. It, that is really to make sure that people, you know, school leavers have a far stronger grounding in technology. And it's not just about consuming apps, but it's about producing and developing apps themselves. Um, on universities, I think, I personally believe that universities need to do more to ensure that the people who are graduating uh, or coming out with PhDs are even more job ready to join these digital businesses. Um, immigration, the, there's been a number, of introdu- uh, a number of entrepreneurs' visa routes introduced in recent times, uh, such as the entrepreneurs' visa, which is actually being reviewed uh, right now by the Migration Advisory Committee, uh, the introduction of the Exceptional Tech Talent Visa uh, uh, to ensure that we, you know, we are attracting the best and brightest. And I guess to your question, it's about ensuring that we're attracting the right talent now, I know that universities are responsible for endorsing visas, student visas. Um, and it's, it's insu- but it's, it's, the government's looking at this from a number of perspectives. It's making sure that uh, we are attracting the right people at the right time in what we want them to do. And I think that's the thing. Um, because we've also seen a lot of people and this is actually true to our academy. We launched an academy about six months ago. Uh, it's called the Digital Business Academy. Um, and this is a, a partnership we've actually forged with UCL as well as Cambridge University to make, it, to, make it, to make it extremely easy to learn the latest skills in digital. And we've had over 16,000 people sign up to the academy in six months. Um, you know, we have over 10,000 people in training because we're realizing that people are wanting to switch careers or get into digital or get a digital job. 
And not only do we provide them with the digital skills, but we actually provide them with access to opportunities in digital companies. So there's a number of things that are being worked on and looked at by the Migration Advisory Committee on this point. What's the other question? The other question is about the casualization of labor. So what would automation, oh, sorry, automation bring us yeah. as a sort of downside as well as an upside? I think, I th- so here's the thing about digital employment. It's about moving up in terms of the skills that the skills of today, and even I, I graduated from an evening school um, uh, recently in New York. I moved from New York to, to take this job on, and some of the skills I actually learned at evening school in New York are already out of date. That's the thing. The speed at which the, this industry is going at is, inc- is going at an incredible rate. And I think lifelong learning in ensuring that this country is ready for the future and being as prepared as possible means that we need to all get into the habit of just keep on stay, staying, staying um, I guess, uh, uh, um, staying at speed with this development so that we learn the latest skills. The, the, the latest skills are in artificial intelligence or machine learning. Um, and there is a, 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 a sort of a, uh, or, or cybersecurity. These are the new emerging areas of talent that we need to nurture for the future and making sure that this country is ready to take on and embrace this future. I think there's nothing stopping us from doing that. And it's really about taking on the future rather than preserving the past. Great, thank you. Let's have some more questions. Okay, um, so that I'm going to take some from up in the balcony so I don't forget. So we have a guy just here on the front, and then we have someone over here on the right. Hi, yes, uh, my name's Tom Cadella, also from New York. Um, I, I, I had um, your, your idea of, of people continuing their training requires government policy of some sort. Have you, has anything been discussed along those terms? I, I can understand that you can get some training so that you can then become part of the digital um, cult, but what happens when you are in the digital cult and you have to continue advancing and that process just becomes more rapid? Does the government play a role in that and what would the policies look like for something like that? Is it, is it in other words, you can advance everybody to a certain level and then you're you're where you were before, unless you have a plan. Has anything ever been thought through? Okay, great. Thank you. So we had another question, lady, towards the far side. Um, I wonder, I'm from LSE, Media and Communications. Um, I wonder how do you see the role of um, the local... Uh, enterprise partnerships like across the UK uh, to support the the work that you're doing and in particular uh, having worked with uh, tech entrepreneurs um, they are very critical about uh, the efforts of uh, promotion that the government um, kind of puts into certain regions um, since this, of course, takes away money from uh, perhaps funding for these companies 
uh, as opposed to to giving kind of a, a desirable profile to certain region or certain city. Um, so I wonder what are the 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 tensions that you see there, and how could you solve these kind of of issues? Great, thank you. Okay, so two policy-related questions. Mm -hmm. The um, role of government policy on skills and particularly on sort of continuous upgrading of skills um, and then the role of local enterprise partnerships and, and the, sort of the scepticism that you often get from the private sector not just in tech uh, I'd say um, about what government does around business advice and, and business mentoring and support So let me start with the labs one um, I've, I've, def, I've, I've visited many uh, regions around the UK, many cities around the UK, and I've had direct conversations with the LEPs. Uh, some LEPs, when I look at the range of LEPs that there are, there are about 39 in this country, and there are different stages of development. Some completely get digital and get the role of digital, and some of them don't. Uh, but they're learning very quickly. And I think our latest uh, report called Tech Nation has really helped to shine a light on what is important in terms of policy priorities for their areas. Uh, if you take Bristol, for example, working very much hand-in-hand -hand with entrepreneurs, the local universities, the local institutions, to make space available for startups, to make entrepreneurs feel that they have a, an environment in which they can thrive and grow, and they really get it. Uh, and they actually have specific strategies for, for growing digital employment. In other instances, what, what I've noticed is that some labs actually bundle digital strategies for growth with other growth opportunities. And that could be, it might be that the lab has, or the local area has been known for shipbuilding or iron ore forging. And it gets, unfortunately, in such, some situations, it, it gets bundled in with growth. And I think it comes down to the composition of the LEP. It comes down to the local understanding of how institutions can play a part in ensuring that they're fostering the growth of digital businesses. So to your point, the fact is that actually all the LEPs are now really taking this on. And, and I think Tech Nation has played a role in that, in, in, in making them very, very aware of what an opportunity they have on their local doorstep. Um, the second question, I was not completely... How would you summarize it? If I've understood... The, the, people were walking out. I'm really sorry. People were walking sure. out. But Yes. Could you, sorry, can yes. you grab the, the mic? The way education is today, do you think it will look different tomorrow? Should it be different? If you could redesign the four-year college or the two-year college or whatever this absurdity yeah. we have today, it just doesn't fit with what you're, what you're speaking. Which stage? You're talking about late at... Uh, uh, both. I mean, they just, just redesign it. It's a clean slate. Somebody yeah. has to do it all over again, right? So, I don't know. I have... Uh, <laughs> um, there's a platform... Uh, in the States, um, and the name completely escapes me, uh, that my son's been using for about four years. Um, Coursera? Not Coursera, no. Uh, it is... Um, Khan Academy. Khan Academy. So I'm sure you're familiar with Khan Academy, right? So the beauty of Khan Academy is is not just obviously what you learn, but you, you're able to zoom, you know, like zoom in on where your weaknesses are as a student, which is so much more productive for the teacher. Because the teacher, when, when the teacher is, is, is teaching 26 pupils, he or she is teaching them at the same level. He, he or she is assuming everybody has got the same level of understanding. 
But what Khan Academy does and enables the teacher to do is to be able to identify where there are potential weaknesses um, in the student that they have. So I think... Look, I mean, this government really is, take, is looking at this quite, quite closely. And, and obviously, the introduction of coding from the age of five is something which is quite a step forward, given that we've, we're one of very, very few countries in the world to have actually put, made this compulsory. Um, so I, 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 I say that, you know, they're very aware of ed tech companies uh, that are emerging um, and uh, I, I think m- more will be done in that area, for sure. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of some of the edtech companies we have in London. I don't know if anyone has heard of Kano, but Kano is a computer that kids can build and actually build applications on, and it's, it's been simplified. It tells a story. It tells a terrific story of how to build a computer. And, and there is a real drive right now to ensure that people are understanding what makes up these, these applications, what goes on behind these applications, so we don't actually become a society that learns how to consume but also learns how to build and program computers in telling them what to do. <clears throat> Excellent. More questions. So we have... So we have this guy here, this guy here, and then he over there. Hi, is this on? Uh, my name's Akash, I'm a brand consultant. Uh, one of the things that um, I tend to think about is creativity, design, arts within technology. Um, it seems to me the best startups, the ones like Apple, Airbnb coming up, Uber combine great technological talent with great design talent um, and Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs and that kind of thing but, uh, and then you look at government and their promotion of the STEM subject science, technology, engineering, mathematics and that's removing arts from the syllabus uh, so what I'm worried about is that you get a lot of students with great coding ability, great engineering skills but lacking creative ideas to actually create something meaningful um, so what would be your solution to that, and do you agree? Thank you. Just pass the mic that way. Hi, uh, my name is Tristan. Um, with regard to uh, Tech City, um, other than being an incubator, to what extent uh, do you be, are you part of that development, uh, urban develop, um, digital development? Okay, and then we have one more question. It's this guy on the third row here. Hi there, my name's Ed. I'm a graduate of LSC, and I've been working in technology strategy in local government and healthcare since I left. Um, two questions, if I may. One is we focused on the sort of enablers and the why and the what it should be. I'm just wondering, I guess, what your logical roadmap is to get there, and I guess more importantly, what obstacles and challenges you see in sort of allowing us to progress to that second generation, as you call it. And the second one is a simple clarification, really. Are the views that you're talking about in the sort of London as a platform your personal views or the views of your organisation that you're driving into policy and the organisations that you work with? Great, thank you. So, um, three more diverse questions. Uh, the role of design and design talent in tech and whether STEM is sort of taking away from that. Um, the role of Tech City in urban digital development, if I understood that right, mm-hmm. and then getting a sense of the, of the obstacles and challenges you see in, in putting your vision into practice 
uh, and are these your views? Yeah. So my view is that creativity, without creativity, you don't get innovation. So, and yes, you're right. So when you look at front-end design of any application, there's a lot of social science and social behavior analysis that takes that is taken into consideration. And I've seen some great applications built when you've got the engineers, the developers, and the designer all working in harmony. Uh, and there's a real recognition that actually, uh, when you look at the UK, there are some great art schools um, um, that are, are, are actually going into digital employment. Uh, the the CEO of Roly, and Roly produces a unique uh, music instrument um, that's sold around the world, and they're just not very far from here. And they really apply an artisan approach to building this instrument on their railway arches. You know, he graduated from the Royal School of Art, but he's now been recruiting lots of PhDs from Cambridge University uh, in, that have um, recently graduated in data science and is, is being able to produce these types of you know, instruments. So there's, there's actually increasing recognition that actually innovation and creativity and the combining of people from multiple disciplines is what actually fuels that innovation. Um, and, and also in terms of UX and UI and user interface and how important user interface comes, you know, because the easier you make services, the more adopted they are, right? So, um, so yes, what I hear is STEAM, which is STEM plus A, which is STEAM, increasingly included in the narrative. And we, you know, we're, we're, we're a big supporter of that ourselves. And the next question was uh, Tech City. So Tech City does three things. Essentially, it's all about accelerating the growth of digital businesses in London and across cities around the UK. It essentially does three things. One, it runs programs. So programs like the Digital Business Academy, where we've had over 15,000 people sign up to train up, to learn the latest skills in digital, and then we connect them in, depending on what they want to do, apprenticeships, internships, startup loans, co-working space, mentorship, whatever it is. And then we also have a later stage accelerator, for example, called Future 50. Um, and this helps you know, CEOs and CMOs and CFOs of those companies to meet with analysts, we have uh, leadership workshops. We, access, you know, we connect them to the London School of, sorry, the, the, the London Stock Exchange to access capital markets, both called LSE. And the point that there is that when you look at the future 50s of 50 fast-growing companies, um, we, there's been 24 rounds raising over 700 million pounds, and they're employing over 17,000 people. So we, we deal with these programs are dealing with people who are just having an idea and want to get to the next stage of growth, right through to companies that are employing thousands of people. Um, we also do policy work in the sense that we are here to convene policymakers and entrepreneurs. So a good example of this: two weeks ago, we had the Director General for the digital single market and his policy team here in town. And we had a very intimate um, meeting and convening of about 70 people where we talked about the digital single market um, and what, you know, what challenges and opportunities there are. So that's policy convening. And then number three is we, we do promote London and the UK, both nationally and internationally, which is very important. And that has really helped fuel the growth of what we've seen here in London. That's my personal belief. So that's what we do as, a, as an organization. So the third question was about obstacles and challenges that you see ahead of you. So yes, so, so clearly 
Um, uh, work, work, I can start by um, you know, digital infrastructure, meaning uh, Wi-Fi and, and broadband um, clearly is the lifeblood of any business. Um, in Tech City, uh, we, we, you know, if you look at the last five years, they've gone, you know, that, that area itself, and the, you know, if you look at the topology, it's been quite challenging because it's gone from 200 software companies to over 3,000 software companies in five years, and that has actually been quite challenging for the service providers. But actually, we have met with the CEOs of all the major providers, and they've come to Tech City, and you've seen a lot more commitment from those providers as a result. Um, doesn't mean the job's done. There's always more that can be done. Um, we've also introduced uh, a, voucher, a voucher scheme um, because one of the things that we found is that businesses can find it um, a little bit expensive to get fiber to the, to the, to the premises. So what we've ensured that we do is we provide a, a voucher scheme where we get up to £3,000 off for any digital business to get fiber to the, to the premises. Um, but even when you're laying fiber to the premises, this can be quite tricky because you've got the local council involved with the service provider and, and, and also open reach, and that can sometimes prove challenging. But that is also being tackled as well, which is why you're seeing companies like Relish and Optimity. These are companies that are providing wireless solutions to um, businesses that need Wi-Fi and need, need broadband. But you know, more, more is being done. And actually, the, the GLA released recently a map of London, uh, and, and, and it's opened it up to people where, who would like to make a note of where there, is, there needs to be better connectivity and better broadband. And this is now open up. This is opened. It's on the GLA website. So it is, if you are in an area where you're not getting good broadband, you can actually make sure that they can get that, your details. Um, other challenges, obviously, uh, th this is partly why we launched the Digital Business Academy, because obviously when talking to entrepreneurs and CEOs, uh, they're always, you know, they're recruiting more and more people. If you look at a company like TransferWise, it's gone from tens, you know, a, dozen, a dozen few people uh, four years ago, and it's now employing over 220 people. Uh, if you look at Farfetched, it's an e-commerce business. Um, it has over 500 people. Uh, and so these are, these, are, these are companies that are growing extremely quickly. And as I said, uh, one of the challenges is keeping up with the latest skills in digital, whether it's digital marketing, digital product development, UX, UI design, or tools in JavaScript, or, or, or what are the latest languages for building applications. That's a challenge. It's not just a challenge for London, by the way. It's a challenge for friends of mine in Seattle and Boston and New York. Uh, and, and that's, on the one hand, exciting. On the other hand, it's challenging. Uh, but we mustn't rest on our laurels, that's for sure. Great, thank you. So I had a guy just over here on the right who had a question earlier, and he still has one. And then here, and then here. So, thank you. It's this guy, to, sorry, this guy towards the back on the right. Hi, Roman Thompson, uh, LSE student. Um, you touched on TransferWise and uh, Funding Circle as two successful examples of disruption. Do you think that 
fintech businesses such as these will continue to be such a defining feature of London's startup scene? If so, why? Great, thank you. Um, guy on the second row here with the white T-shirt. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a fashion editor. Um, so what I kind of see a lot happening, and you've mentioned Farfetch'd, uh, Farfetch'd um, is the you know kind of things moving from you know onto digital onto tech, and that's sort of kind of starting to now kind of deplete what was you know kind of more traditional forms, kind of more tangible forms. For example, print media, um, you know, high street retail. Um, do you think that there is a way for them to kind of balance each other out and sort of kind of to coexist or do you think it's just a natural evolution or or an unnatural evolution depends on how you look at it that one will eventually replace the other great thank you um we have one more question here man with the white shirt and then i'll come to you in the next round hi my hi my name's john uh, and i just wanted to pick up on one point over there that someone said about maybe the tech revolution could potentially leave some people behind and I just wonder whether that's actually a, a point of history, really, that there's always situations where people are left behind, whereas maybe technology is going to be the way that actually enables more people to get involved in other things. Um, that Maybe that's just a point of reflection. But my sort of question is just around regulation, really. Uh, and then it sounds like it's been a force for good over the last sort of five years, which seems strange that maybe more regulation in a capitalist economy could somehow be a good thing. And I'm just wondering whether or not you think that regulation going forward could actually be um, a negative and an inhibitor for um, growth in the tech sector in London. Uh, and, and the second point on that was also around um, whether you think that the, the sort of significant valuations we're seeing on a lot of tech firms at the moment, uh, some, people, some commentators see them as being bubble valuations. I don't know whether that's the case or not. But um, I suppose my question is whether you think that these bubble valuations could somehow undermine the sector uh, if there's, there's another sort of economic event or economic downturn. Great, thanks. So you've snuck two questions in there. Well done. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, Gerard, um, fintech and, the, and where that's going to go, um, the future for the future of the fashion industry, online versus offline, mm. um, how helpful is regulation at various levels and then uh, are we in a tech bubble so quite a lot to cover there okay so fintech so it's no surprise that i guess london is increasingly becoming the fintech capital of the world um according to some estimates there are more people working in fintech here than anywhere else in the world uh According to Bloomberg, a Bloomberg report, uh, there are 44,000 people working in fintech compared to 43,000 in New York, compared to 12,000 in Silicon Valley. So I think there's nothing stopping London continuing on that trajectory to be to become the fintech capital of the world. I think you have a critical mass of expertise in financial services, and now you have a critical mass of expertise in, t- in software technology and software development. And that's why you're seeing companies like TransferWise and Funding Circle and Zopa and, and others you know, grow so quickly. Um, the other thing is that the FSA is extremely open to how it needs to evolve as a regulator, which brings me to the point about regulation. And they've made, you know, they're quite open in the sense that um, they have 
uh, I can't remember the exact name of their project, but they're always you know, conducting call-outs to companies to review how, what else they should be doing to ensure that regulation is helping fuel the growth of the sector. A good example of one that we got involved in last year is uh, the introduction of bad debt relief for peer-to-peer lending platforms and making sure that peer-to-peer lending platforms as an asset, as an investment asset, is at the same level as a banking asset for investment. And this was introduced by the Chancellor uh, in the autumn uh, budget in December, and that was a terrific win for uh, the industry to continue evolving. So regulation can really help in that respect and, and, and ensure that we, have, we continue to have an edge um, uh, on, 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 on the industry, I guess, and, and ensuring that there is continued growth. And that it's all on, a, on the same level playing field. That's the point. But I, I, honestly, the, the number of fintech companies that are coming through London is phenomenal in the last few years, and I'm very excited about the future on that front. Um, the thing about, uh, so yeah, I didn't quite understand the full question here, but I guess, are you talking about Farfetch being a sort of an e-commerce? Yeah, just, that's, that's obviously an Yeah. I think it's a bit of both. So, if, so, if you, so Farfetch, by the way, has invested heavily on in logistics, um, and also is quite engineering driven, and they do a great job of analyzing data and synthesizing data to ensure that what you see when you log on is is as relevant as possible. It's all about relevancy and timing. Um, but it's, it's also making the most of combining an, engineer, an engineering-led talent as well as an editorial-led talent. It, it, it's putting them together, which is what's creating such fascination about the success of Farfetch. You know, Farfetch has been a great success story. Um, but the, as I said, it's also put a lot of energy in logistics and making sure that people receive the goods that they buy as quickly as possible, which you know, requires investment as well. Um, but then you're seeing companies like John Lewis who have, are doing extremely well in the sense that they are having a relationship with people both online and offline. And they've been extremely successful in combining that very well. And they've done that through a number of ways. They've also set up an incubator uh, to ensure that they're staying as close as possible to startups. And, and they've, they've actually specialized in invest, investing in types of technologies that can enable consumer engagement so that when you come into the store, you know, they're looking at how they've already got some information about you because you've opted into it and they know what you've bought in the past online and so that relationship continues in the store and vice versa. So I, I think London's a fantastic place for that sort of innovation and experimentation. Um, yeah. Cool. Are you, uh, can I tempt you to try and cool the market? In John's other question on valuations. Uh, so I guess many, many, li- many stars have aligned themselves over the last few years, which is why we're seeing such exponential growth. And 
the, I think what you're seeing now, however, is there, yes, there are many startups. There are many startups, but there are many more scale-ups. These are scale-ups are companies that have reached stage A or stage B in their um, investment rounds, and they are growing extremely quickly and employing hundreds of people. Uh, and so, I think what any you know any government should continue doing is fostering the right conditions for that continued growth, and whether it's internationalization. Um, uh, bringing on more talent, but regulation has a has a role to play, and I think um, that's why it's so important for government to stay as close as possible to have an open conversation in a, on, a, on a continuous basis with entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs, and making their voices become part of the conversation with government. And you know, when you look at the budget in March of this year, who would have imagined the Chancellor? Um, talking so much about digital technology and how, much, how many things they introduced in the budget. Five years ago, I, for me, that would have been unimaginable. But I think that's how far we've come as a country in terms of understanding and embracing the role that digital technology in creating jobs and also contribution of GDP. So, Great, thank you. So you had one question here front, by in the second row in the middle. Uh, and then we've got a couple more up on the balcony. So we've got a lady over there in the middle on the back row. So you first. Sir. Hi there. Um, my name's uh, Tony. I'm a consultant in uh, technology. Um, this is a question about... It's going, um, actually uh, continued on from the regulation. And it's about... It's an, I'm using crowdfunding example here in terms of after the financial crisis and then and the last three years, crowdfunding and peer-to-peer platforms, not just in the UK but uh, around the world, have really kind of risen and, and raised quite a lot of money for... Uh, lenders, companies to uh, grow. But what happens if look, you talk about innovation, new ideas, and you are very well experienced, knowledgeable, knowledgeable in the market that new things are coming and things, companies, digital platforms are going to co- come onto the market that are going to disrupt it. But you know that you're maybe a year, year and a half, two years ahead in terms of not just building the platform and getting all the skills, uh, but also all the engineers and the people to build the platform and move it forward, but also you are able to come to market. But you know at this time, after talking to uh, policymakers, not just in the UK, but in the EU as well, that you know that you're about one to two years, the market is three to four years in its infancy. So the question I'm asking is how committed and time-wise in terms of being in the right place at the right time, that you are fully aware it's going to happen, how are you supposed to actually you know, come to the market before before you're actually just waiting, waiting, waiting for that regulation. And the time period, all the time, three years you've spent, you're just sitting there trying to, you know, see where the market's going. And like you said, Tech City and the, the gains you've just made, you're talking about the budget, that's ideal. But some of these kind of gains would have been very useful to companies about four years ago when they were ahead, but it's taken such a long time. And by that time, they haven't been able to, to get into the market and they've just gone to different things that are existing now. And maybe they're thinking about new ideas, but the ideas they're thinking about, the kind of thoughts behind it, the regulation isn't there yet, so it's a high risk just for the regulation. Great, thank you. So we have a, a questioner up here in the balcony. Thanks. Hi, um, I'm Regina, and I'm very interested in the prospect of having smart cities in Africa, um, especially in my home country of Nigeria. Um, do you feel that Tech City UK could be a model that developing countries such as Nigeria could actually adopt? Um, and if so, in what way, especially as there's different social and political factors that have a part to play? 
Great, thank you. And then we have one more question. It's this guy on the front row here with the check shirts. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. I'm wondering about um, capital markets and the investment communities. Would it be safe to say that they're localized or uh, are they, to any degree, international? I mean, I know in California at the moment, a lot of people have no need for IPOs because there's such a, a large um, capital, uh, you know, venture capital, and you know, um, it's there. Now, in London, uh, in the past, Startups have reached a certain stage, and then they've simply sold out. And I would think with something, and that's going to be the case, for instance, that unless there's a great deal of investment funds found, perhaps through the city or elsewhere, for instance, with one of these startups, TransferWise, what's going to stop PayPal? I mean, these American companies are flush, absolutely flush with capital. So yeah, if, I was, if I was one of these investors, I'd just wait for something in London to hit, hit a certain stage, come in, bang, off them a load of money, and they're gone. Great, thank you. So, again, three diverse questions here. Um, this of government uh, regulation, regulatory structures holding uh, new ideas back from the market. Can Texas and UK be a model in less developed countries, particularly in West Africa? Yeah. And what kind of capital markets do we have? How localized and nationalized? So, uh, which one should I start with? Off. <laughs> uh, uh, let's just pick the last one first. So, in the case of in, what, what I have certainly seen in my 16 months in the role is that there's been a real change in culture. And yes, to some extent in the past, you have seen companies maybe sell out, maybe earlier than they expected. But I have definitely seen a change in culture where companies are being offered, they're receiving offers, but they are going all the way. And recently we've seen IPOs like Just Eat. Uh, this is a company that moved to London from Denmark. And it was one of the first companies to make use of the high growth segment that was introduced as part of the London Stock Exchange uh, um, suite of services that they've recently introduced to make it easy for, at least to smoothen the success for high growth companies to come and list here. And the market cap, the last time I checked Just Eat, the market cap of Just Eat was about 2.5 billion pounds. So, and that's a London-based company on the London Stock Exchange. And that was not the case a few years ago, right? And that's been a real massive shift. Uh, there's Zoopla as another company. There's AO.com. And I think uh, it'll be an interesting year for sure. Um, so I think, and I think there's a real sense of, uh, there's, there's a real sense of excitement around this now. Um, and that... There is bullishness in the sense that companies are starting here, growing here, and staying here. And, 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 and that's a good thing. And also, I've seen other companies that, yes, they may have been acquired, but they have definitely, as part of the deal, they wanted to stay here. So, and now, the acquirer is flying engineers from abroad and moving them here to create a, a critical mass of expertise around that specific area that they have obviously specialized in. And so, uh, it, there's been a real change in culture in that respect. 
the second question was um, on regulatory regulation. So I think, look, I, I would definitely argue that this government and the, and the previous government, they, they're doing a hell of a lot in ensuring that the conversation between entrepreneurs, the dialogue between entrepreneurs and founders is as close as possible to what um, is as close as possible to, 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 to government, so that there is no sort of um, misalignment. Or not, there aren't any seeds of misalignment, which is why part of the reason why you've seen so many policies introduced. And now, believe it or not, a few years later, we see other countries copying some of the things that have been introduced in this country, whether it's introduction of R&D tax credits or the entrepreneur's visa or the introduction of the exceptional tech talent visa or the seed enterprise investment scheme, which has released over 250 million pounds into the system over the last three years. And we're seeing other countries follow. And so the reason for that is because there's a real appetite from government to stay as close as possible to, what, to knowing what the latest challenges and opportunities are. And the same goes, by the way, for regulators, like the FSA, as I was saying. They regularly have roundtables. And in fact, in the, in the area of fintech, there's an organization called Innovate Finance that works with the City of London, uh, that works very closely with companies as well as the regulator to ensure that understanding isn't as wide as it should be, but very close, in fact. And the last question was the so tech city in, 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 in Nigeria. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we, we certainly host delegations from other countries on a regular basis because they are very keen to understand what has made tech city so successful, but also uh, we are definitely noticing that cities around the world are wanting to ensure that they create the they foster the conditions for growth in their local cities and there are a number of things I touched on them in my speech but now as I said earlier they're actually now looking at London as the place where to internationalize their business and I'd like to obviously I'm a bit biased because I'd like to see a lot more of that uh, uh, but they as I said they get access to capital markets that they cannot in their local vicinities and the thing about VC investment, you know, over 60% of VC investment in Europe is in London. There are lots of funds based here because it's London. And so a lot of VC money is coming through London and therefore companies are having to travel to London to be part of that conversation with investors. Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, TransferWise is a classic example where you know, you've got an American investor called Andreessen Horowitz that has invested in Airbnb and other big companies. And as a result of that, they've also invested in two other British companies in the last 12 months. That's a great sign. They're seeing talent. They're investing in it. And as a result, they're coming a lot more often. Right? That's the point. Uh, so, and that's, the, and, and, and that's created a, a very strong groundswell and a critical mass of expertise that obviously other cities from around the world want to be part of. Fantastic. I think we have time for one more question just before I... Anyone want to have a go? Yeah, okay, sorry. You were hidden behind the lights and we have a guy over there with the blue shirt. Hi, my name's uh, Jing. I'm just a simple law graduate. Um... And my main question was, uh, with all the excitement around smart cities, how do you respond to critics of gentrification who perhaps aren't um, 
as in love with technology as people in this crowd are? It's a great question to finish on. <laughs> so I think that was the point that uh, the gentleman was making earlier about when there is change um, and you're trying to bring everybody with you, there's always going to be some naysayers. Uh, so I think the point I was making in the speech was that the fact that you know, we need to make sure that humans come first and that we don't end up with situations like smart bins and toilets that don't really understand what humans are wanting or needing. And so the point about urbanization or that there are more people living in cities than any other time in history. And what I want to see is better you know, application of technology to solve some of the issues that we have. And I, I think I'm hoping that some of the examples that I gave uh, can sort of capture our imagination of what, what is possible and that we can learn so much from other cities that are looking at this more um, or are looking at this. Um, I think yeah, sometimes the danger is that we, we, we go down the route of creating technology for technology's sake. And I think it's sort of, you know, the, the important thing is to turn the table around and say, well, let's start with user needs. What are the user needs? And let's make sure that we build the services that will make the city more efficient, more resourceful, more resourceful, more effective as a result of technology, the application of technology. Um, so, um, yes, I was going to sort of use an example. Uh, does that answer your question? Okay. Okay. Um, let's finish there because it's uh, my watch is running slow, but LSE time says it's eight o'clock. So, right. Look, thank you all very much for coming along um, for your smart and engaged questions. I think you've posed, you know, you've you've helped us open up the debate. I think you've also posed some important challenges to. Um, to what we've heard from Gerard. I'm also conscious that Gerard's spoken for 40 minutes and then been grilled by you all, so thank you for submitting to this academic experience.